Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Yorkfield. Happy Palm Sunday. It's going to be a great day today, a great Sunday to worship our Lord and Savior. Let's all stand and sing our first song today in honor of Palm Sunday. Hosanna. One, two, three, four. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the
And I said to sing hallelujah, hallelujah. Sing hallelujah, hallelujah. Let all the world sing praises to the King. Hallelujah, let all the world sing praises. Let all the world sing praises. Let all the world sing praises to the King. Please be seated. You remind me of my barber. This week I went to the barber, and you know, as people do, he says to me, Mike, what's the good word? Well, I'm a pastor, you know. So I say to him, well, Dan, Jesus loves you. And his response was kind of like yours. Oh, oh, oh. I, was, I, I should have known he was going to say that. Today is Palm Sunday, a day of great joy when we should know, as followers of the Christ, that we do have a Jesus who loves us dearly and greatly and eternally. So hopefully, a bit of that joy of Palm Sunday is in your heart, and as we celebrate today, that'll continue to, to come out. Uh, let me share some, some announcements with you. It is great to have you here today. Um, you'll notice there's some things to sign up for in the bulletin. Some of that has to do with Holy Week services that are coming up. Um, there's a Christian Seder meal on Thursday that uh, we want to encourage you to be a part of. Um, this is your last day to sign up for that. It's all generations uh, from kids uh, through adults are, are participating in this. But it is something that we need to order food for, so we need to have uh, numbers, kind of final numbers today for that. Then also on Good Friday, here in the sanctuary at 7.30 will be a, a, a very um, kind of serious uh, somber tenebrae services. The room gets darker and darker as we reflect on those last hours of Jesus' life. And then Easter morning, uh, two celebrative services, both at 9 and here at 11.15. Um, the Yorkfield drama players will be here and some others as well. Um, and then there's a special um, little continental breakfast in between the services. So next week you can come a little bit early have some breakfast downstairs, and then come on up to worship uh, after that. We have a couple things to, to, to go along with that. You'll notice out here uh, at the Welcome Center, there's some of these cards. You might have been feeling a little bit like this, or there's some folks around you uh, who are. It says, if it seems like everything is falling around you, like your stock market into the, to the ground, on the flip side, we know that a rising... Uh, we know a rising that changes everything. This is a little card that has all of our uh, Holy Week services on it. There might be somebody that you know that uh, God is trying to nudge forward to, to come to worship um, because the Holy Spirit wants to do something in their life. Why don't you just take this to their door, hand it to them, and they'll be so happy that it's not somebody trying to invite them to vote for them. They're just going to be excited this week. So do that. And uh, it'll be a wonderful thing. And then, kids, you, uh, some of you have taken these fish banks and you're filling them up right now with, you know, gold doubloons and Krugerrands and all those things that you have lying around home. And next week, 
you're going to bring these back to worship. This is when we received the one great hour of sharing. And actually, to, to tell you a little bit more about that one great hour of sharing, we have a DVD that we're going to play right now as, uh, um, so you can really hear what this is all about. One great hour of sharing. What in the world does that mean? For 60 years, it's meant a lot of things to a lot of people. Maybe it depends on who you are. If you're thirsty on a hot day, it means a safe, cool drink of water. If you're one of the girls who used to carry that water, it means now you have the time to go to school. If you've just survived a whirlwind of human or natural violence that destroyed your possessions, your memories, your very livelihood, it means you don't stand alone. It means another's hand helping you start over, standing alongside you and pulling together over the long haul. If you have a family and no way to support them, one great hour of sharing can mean a way to earn that support with your own hands. If speculators buy your crops cheap when you need money and sell them back expensive when you need food, it means grain banks that help you control your own food supply. If you've lived with injustice day after day, it means knowing that together we can bring about change. If your hope is just a spindly little shoot, it means knowing how to nurture it so that it can nourish your family and show that in the abundance of God's love, there is enough for everyone. If you're tired of being moved from place to place, even by people trying to help, it means the dignity of making your own decisions. If you're just a person who doesn't like to see others suffering, for you, it can mean a chance to see the face of Jesus in those of our sisters and brothers, a chance to share your resources and change lives, and maybe find your life changed along the way, an opportunity to join generations of Presbyterians partnering to share in the bountiful love of God. That's what one great hour of sharing means. That's what it's always been. With your commitment, it can be so much more. Please, join in. Please give generously. Will the children please join me? and welcome to the festival. You all came here for the festival today, right? Oh, if you could see the looks on their faces. <laughs> this is the week that we remember when Jesus and his disciples gathered in Jerusalem for the festival week, when Jews from all across the lands came to celebrate the festival of Passover. And on that day of the week, at the beginning of the week, 
Jesus rode a donkey into the city, and the people there had come from all over Galilee and far away. They had walked for days, and they were so excited to see Jesus. Do you remember what they did, how they stood along the streets and waited for Jesus to, to parade past them on a donkey? What did they do? They put down palm leaves, and what else? What else? They put down their coats. They took the coats right off their backs and laid them on the dusty, sandy desert. Does anyone remember, did they say anything? Yeah, what did they say? Hosanna. Hosanna. What does that word mean? Help us. It probably does mean help us. What else would Hosanna mean? It means we praise you. We're excited. We celebrate you being here. So let's stand up and get ready for the parade. So we need to get all these palms out to all the people who are sitting in the pews. I'm going to give each of you a handful of palms, and we will be the people preparing to line the streets. And as we're walking down the center aisle, stop at each pew, some of you on one side, some on another, and let's make sure that everyone in the congregation gets a palm. Can you help me do that? And while we're walking, what do you think we should say? Hosanna, let's do that. Let's say Hosanna. Hosanna, Hosanna. Oh, it's okay. We're going to drop them on the floor anyways. After we sing Hosanna, Hosanna, let's say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's practice. Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. I don't think Jesus would hear you. I'm going to put my microphone down, and I want you to say it as loud as you can because you are so excited. You've waited for Jesus, and it's time. He's coming. You ready? The last part goes like this. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's just do that part. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And then after that, the congregation, your part is to say, the King of Israel. The King of Israel. Whoa. Could you hear them? Yeah. Yeah. So we need to be as loud as they are. What we're going to do with these is we're going to walk and have a parade, and then you pass them out to people as you walk past them, okay? That sounds like fun. We're going to practice one more time. Hosanna! And then we'll say it again and again and again till we get all the way to the back. And then we'll have a prayer. Are you ready? It's time for the parade to start. Does anyone need more? Okay. Okay. All right. Yeah, you do, Jack. You need more. Here you go. Okay. Here we go. We're waving our palms. You ready? 
Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. One more time. Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's drop the rest of our palms right here. Drop them right there, right there. And will you pray with me? Let us pray. Jesus, you are our king. We are so excited that you are walking into Jerusalem with us. Hear our voices as we say, Hosanna, and be with us through all the days of this holy week. In your name we pray and all God's children say, amen. Over the last uh, several weeks of Lent, we have been uh, fortunate to, to have four wonderful speakers come each week and, and talk to us about where God has been in their life, particularly in times of adversity. So these are kind of uh, more difficult times, and these people have been very gracious to do that. And, and this week we end the series by having uh, Ken Hurdig come and talk about uh, where God has been with him in some times of adversity in his life. If you don't know Ken, as he's coming up here, let me uh, introduce him to you. Ken is um, a retired postal worker, and... Uh, got out while the getting was good. And um, he's uh, married to Cindy, has three grown children, no grandchildren yet, though you have two grand puppies, Bubba and Bruiser, right? And uh, there's a certain whole segment of folks over time, uh, over a 10 year span or so, that know him by a whole other name, which is Butter. And you can ask him after uh, worship today how that came to pass. Um, Ken grew up here in the church as a kid. He grew up in Yorkfield, just not too far down the street, and uh, heavily into sports, was on the famous Yorkfield softball team, um, rightfully famous, right, Gary, in, in the area, yes. And uh, uh, got married to Cindy, and then very quickly, it seemed you're barely out of your teens, you're on your way to Vietnam. And... Uh, you were telling me that uh, you went there as a medic and with the infantry, and pretty quickly you were into some pretty serious stuff and, and into some real life and death uh, experiences. And you said that in, in that kind of area, and as I think about the, the kids in Iraq today, my, 
my nephews and others, um, you said that you get really close to folks. Yeah, when you're uh, living your life on a, on, a, on a daily basis of not knowing whether you're going to get up in the morning or not, uh, you become really, really close to the people you're with because uh, they are your brothers and they're, both, they're there in the same situation that you're in. Obviously, your family's not there with you. So you become attached to them. Uh, you love them just as much as you would your, your own parents or your own brother or sister. Uh, I was fortunate to uh, come into country with a, with a large group of guys. Quite a few of us got sent to the same unit. So I was with about a dozen guys who uh, we had uh, formed a, a good band of camaraderie before we even uh, got sent out to the boonies. You're telling me that there is one guy in particular, a guy named Tony, that you got really close to. Yeah, Tony was uh, uh, Tony Garcia. We call him Tony the Tiger because he managed to find jungle fatigues, which at the time were not in vogue. And uh, he managed to find a set of jungle fatigues anytime he wanted them. I have no idea where his supplier was, but he, he found them all the time. He wore them all the time. And uh, Tony was from Philadelphia, and uh, we just kind of hit it off really, really, really tight. And, got to be very close. We uh, knew all about uh, each other's families, although I could never keep track of his because he had like 12 brothers and sisters and things like that. It was a huge family, puzzles all over the place. So uh, you know, Tony was a, a very, very important person at that time in my life along with the other handful of guys that I had come to country with. So as happens, you were sent out one day to patrol a particular road and uh all of a sudden, uh, you found yourself in some pretty serious stuff. Yeah, we had been on a, about a week's worth of uh, patrolling along this uh, completely hidden highway through the jungles in the central highlands of Vietnam, and it was uh, totally canopy from above. You couldn't see it from helicopters, but you could hear them at night driving up and down this thing, so we knew it was a major supply route. So our assignment was to find out what was going on on that road and correct it if we could. And uh, we knew that sooner or later something was going to happen, and we were plodding along one afternoon about two days before I was ready to go on R&R &R with Cindy in Hawaii. And uh, we got the call over the radio that the uh, Point Platoon had been hit in an ambush. Now, they were probably about 200 yards in front of us. And uh, they requested that all the medics come forward. So I would start running up there with a bunch of the guys from uh, my squad, and uh, as we were advancing to the kill zone of the ambush, uh, the NBA closed the back door to the ambush and had us caught in the middle. Mm. And uh, all heck broke loose. And uh, I heard uh, Tony was right next to me as we were running up, and I heard him groan, and I saw him going down to the ground. And, I hit the ground because there was fire going on, and as I went down to the ground, I saw blood spewing from his neck. He had been hit right there. He had severed his major artery, and he was bleeding severely. So I immediately tried to stop the bleeding, uh, and we managed to fight our way through the ambush. We got towing back to a secured area back with the main body of the company, and uh, the bullet had exited his body through his face, and he had lost uh, most of his teeth, his tongue, part of his jawbone. He was in very, very serious condition, and I worked frantically to try to, to do everything that I, that I could possibly think of to do for him. I started blood and everything like that, 
And I saw in his eyes that he was terrified and he couldn't speak. And, and I knew that I had to keep him going from sh into shock until we could get him on a medevac and get him back to a secured area where he could be worked on by doctors. But I think I knew even then, deep down inside, that Tony wasn't going to make it. Uh, just before Tony passed, he grabbed my arm and squeezed it. And he looked into my face, and the look on his face, the look in his eyes, was something I had never seen before. I didn't understand what he was trying to tell me, but it was a look of total tranquility, which was completely diverse from what he had been doing previously. He had seemed to relax. And so we, we, very, very shortly thereafter, just a couple seconds later, he passed. And after we put him on the bird, and we kind of retreated back to a more secure location, I reached into my pocket to get a, a, a cigarette out. And I discovered the flap of my key coat had a bullet hole in it. And I could only imagine that this was the bullet that hit Tony in the, in the neck. It passed through my uniform and onto him. And I started developing a real guilt trip over this. And as the uh, months went on and I finished my tour of duty. So, but guilt that he died and He died and I did yeah, okay. instead of me. At that time, I was also going through a, a real difficult time uh, understanding the war in Vietnam. And that day led me to, to go astray from my faith in the Lord. And I became very angry with God. I didn't understand why he allowed Tony or any of the other 60,000 American boys that gave up their lives in Vietnam. Why, this, why, why, why was this allowed to happen? It didn't make sense to me. And instead of drawing closer to God, I got further away from him. And as I came home, and, uh, I was met at the airport by Cindy and, and, and my father-in-law, Leroy. We got off the plane at O'Hare, and we were met by a hippie, a war protester, who started screaming things like I was a baby killer, and I performed atrocities, and how ashamed I should be of myself. And Cindy kind of at first thought she was going to have to control me. And as it turned out, it was her dad that we had to control. She was extremely upset. I actually uh, had, had, by this point, begun to wonder if he wasn't right. Had I done something wrong? Had I been on the wrong side of an immoral war? And I drifted away from the church. Uh, we lived here in Elmhurst, just on the other side of Butterfield Road, and we made sure the kids came to church every Sunday. And but I had no desire to come to church whatsoever. I was really angry with God and uh, kept on going further and further away from it. So that was, you came back in about 69, and how long did that last? Uh, unfortunately, 24 years. Wow. And I spent most of my time hiding from what I needed to face. Had two jobs, and concentrated on uh, having a good time and partying and helping my kids through their adolescence, growing up and all of their activities, and tried to totally ignore everything that had happened to me before. So, what changed? Well, uh, through the, the help of a whole lot of people in this church, 
specifically uh, mostly Gary and Margaret Schaefer, who, uh, Margaret, by the way, has a birthday today. <laughs> She's 29 again. Uh, they helped me to, to they, they kept on prodding me to come back to church that I needed to be here. And uh, just about that time is when Mike came to Yorkfield and Gary talked to me to go to an open house at the manse and uh, he wanted me to meet this dynamic new pastor that Yorkfield had hired, <laughs> who he was really, really excited about. And uh, he said, you gotta come, this guy's really great and he loves golf. <laughs> so I thought, okay, if he loves golf, I'll give him a shot. <laughs> and uh, I came back to church the following Sunday and from then on, and I can't explain why. Didn't have anything to do with golf or, or this particular pastor, but. Well, I don't know about but that, but. Definitely had something to do with the Holy Spirit, it sounds like. Spirit was, something in your it life. It was working in my life. God was signaling me that it was time for a change in my life. And I started actually getting up on Sunday mornings wanting to go to church. Much to the amazement of my family, I have to admit. <laughs> Everybody was asking, what's wrong with Dad? <laughs> but uh, I, I did start coming back to church and uh, started getting involved in things. I became a deacon and an elder and uh, joined a Bible study uh, that was held at the uh, Palmer residence. Uh, a lot of really, really wonderful people who have really been very, very important in my life were in that, in that group. And one night at Bible study, and they probably all remember this night, I had an epiphany that I finally realized what Tony was trying to tell me. He was trying to tell me that it was okay, that I could relaxed, that he was going to a better place, and he was ready to go there. And that really, really took a heavy burden off of my heart. And then, uh, literally just a few months later, my son Mark asked me if I would come and work with the senior high youth. Mm. Now, <laughs> I have to admit, the teenagers kind of terrified me. I didn't, didn't get along real, real well with mine. I know when I was a teenager, I didn't get along with my dad at all. And uh, so this really didn't seem like a really, really great idea, but I thought it was something that I could do with Mark. Uh, we didn't have a lot of things in common. He was not a big sports fanatic, and you all know I'm a sports nut. So I thought this is an opportunity for me to, to really get to know Mark and to, to do something with him that the two of us would have. So I decided to go ahead and do that, and it turned out to be a complete changing point in my life, and it uh, made me realize what God's plan was for me. That was the reason why he had brought me back here to Yorkfield and why I needed to be here. And over the 10 or 12 years that uh, I've been doing that, I've, uh, well, it's, it's amazing how much it's meant in my life and, and uh, how much these kids, and a lot of you out there have children that I've, advised and work with, and uh, they mean as much to me as my own family does. So it's been a very, very important part of my life, and I feel really, really blessed that I was allowed to have the opportunity to do it. We are blessed to have you do that, and we were talking earlier about this, and you shared with me, maybe just have you share one more thing. There was a, a time on a work trip, one of those famous work trips, and the topic of forgiveness came up. Can you talk about that? Yeah, every, every evening at worship they do a, a, a presentation and the topic of the presentation that in this particular night was uh, forgiveness. That, uh, the Lord forgave us for all of our sins and 
we needed to forgive those who had sinned us, against us. And uh, it, it had a, a really deep meaning to me. One of the kids was having a real difficult problem with it. We sat and talked together uh, for a short period of time, and I think we kind of helped each other out because it, it helped me to realize that I had someone to forgive. I needed to forgive myself. That it wasn't my fault that Tony died in Vietnam or anybody else for that matter. And that I wasn't bad because I came back home. Even though that's how I felt. And I had to I had to unburden myself of that guilt. So the Lord had put this whole situation right in my lap and luckily I was able to realize it without taking another 24 years. So now uh, the Lord's telling me that something else is coming. I don't know what it is. Again, I hope it doesn't take 24 years to get here because I'll be really too old to do much of anything. <laughs> but uh, I know that uh, the, the time that the youth is, is uh, kind of drawing to a close and now it's time to move on to something different. Ken, I don't know what where God is going to call you next either, but I really appreciate the journey that you've been on and for you being willing to share it with us. Thank you.
us pray as we come to the Lord and listen to the scriptures. Heavenly Father, as we prepare our hearts to accept your word, silence in us any voice but your own, so that, as, so that hearing your word, we may also obey your will. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. The scripture today is John 12, verses 12 through 18, and it's page 106 in the Pew Bibles. The next day, the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took the branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it, as it was written, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written of him and had been done to him. So the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and he raised him from the dead continued to testify. And it was also because they heard that he had performed this sign that the crowd went to meet him. Now, right after that Palm Sunday, a little bit too much right after that Palm Sunday, before just a few days had gone by, another crowd shows up. And suddenly the Hosannas have taken on a whole other ring. And the people are now calling for Jesus to be crucified, and that's where we pick up the story in Luke's Gospel, page 88 in your New Testament. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I found in him no ground for the sentence of death. I will therefore have him flogged and then release him. But they kept urgently demanding with loud shouts that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. Two others also, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that's called the Skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. This is the word of the Lord. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Really? What is Jesus talking about? Of course they know what they're doing. I mean, he's definitely all about forgiveness, but there's forgiving without excusing it's not like there's no responsibility here. These people that have nailed Jesus to the cross, they're not two-year-olds with a hammer and nails. They know what they're doing. And those who put them up to it, those standing behind them, the instigators, the ones who pushed to have Jesus executed on trumped-up charges, and then those who sat by and condoned the whole thing, they're responsible too. 
They're the ones who should know better. Indeed, the scholars of scripture, the professional clergy, the men of power. There's nobody that's innocent here. And Jesus isn't really suggesting that. It's not like he's saying, Father, forgive them. They're innocent. He isn't forgiving them because they're innocent. I mean, they know very well that they're having a man killed in their own minds. They're saying this is to be, this is an expeditious act that we're taking care of. It's, it's for the good of the, of the whole civil order. Because this Jesus, this rabble-rouser, has got them all stirred up. And if we aren't careful here, as the chief priest says, it's, it's, it's better that one man die for the good of the whole. Otherwise, if there's unrest, the Romans will rise up and suppress it brutally, and there'll be a huge bloodbath. And it's better that instead one man die and a few drops of blood are shed than that the whole country is in uproar. It's the expedient thing to do. They know what they're doing. But for all that, Jesus still says, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. So what is it they don't know? I guess they don't know who it is they're really crucifying. But this troublemaker is the Son of God. And that God himself, if it were possible, very hard, is breaking at this moment. Even so, I wonder how Jesus and all that was really fully human about him as he hangs on that cross is able to summon up the ability to forgive these guys who have crucified him. How in the midst of incredible physical pain, with insults continuing to be hurled at him while he hangs there on the cross, how is he able to forgive? Could you do that? What superpowers is he employing here? Does he have some kind of spiritual x-ray vision, some super magnanimousness, faster than a speeding insult, able to leave pain and suffering in a single bound? I don't think so. We tend to think that way, though, about Jesus. I certainly found myself doing that in the past, don't we? That we think of him as the super forgiver. That's what he does. We read a passage like this, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And we just go, oh, well, of course. That's what Jesus does. He forgives. It's easy for him. Why? Where do we get that? He's a super forgiver. You like that? Super forgiver. But he's not. I think... I really urge you to not think of him as being different from you on the cross at that point, as he hangs there in all of his humanity. Because if you do that, then it, it lets you off the hook and me off the hook of needing to forgive other people because we go like, oh, he's a lot different than me. 
course, he forgives people. That's who he is. That's how God made him. But remember, he made him fully human and fully divine. So it couldn't have been any easier for Jesus to forgive his persecutors than it is for you and I to forgive those who persecute us. He didn't have special forgiveness power. That's what I'm suggesting. He did some serious suffering on the cross. So then, how does he do it? I'm going to keep pressing this question. How does he do it? This incredible act of forgiveness. Well, I want to suggest to you that he's able to forgive not because he has superpowers, not because all of a sudden he flips over into divine mode there and then sort of says, forgive them, as if it cost him nothing. Not because of his divine nature at all, but because of something that's available to him on the cross. Or maybe I should say, because of someone that's available to him. How do we forgive those who crucify us? On your own, I don't think you can. The pain's too much. When we're persecuted, when we're hurt, we don't go that way. We go much more, the tendency is either to to look inward in self-pity. How can they do this to me? What did I ever do to deserve this? Or to lash out in, in anger. Those are the ways that we go. We don't go into forgiveness mode. When like Jesus, you're persecuted, when you're being crucified, when your whole life has been twisted and distorted, and your words have been ripped out of context and then used against you, how do you forgive? You can't. Not on your own. Do you notice when Ken talked about forgiveness in his own life? Did any of those happen by himself? Every one of those happened in, in a community. At least another person in a community of faith. It allowed him to have a larger perspective. See, you've got to have a larger perspective than the one you're in at the moment when you're being perspective, when you're being persecuted, to be able to forgive. Let me give you a a little more trivial example of what I mean. Several years ago, I was doing a, a wedding. I was officiating at a wedding um, in this little church in Indiana, Hobart, Indiana, and uh, they had no air conditioning. It was August, but it's 4 o'clock in the afternoon. It's 95 degrees. And we're all there, lined up to go, and, and uh, you know, it is hot. Now, brides are awesome. I don't know, it could be like a million degrees and brides never sweat. And this bride was no exception, but I and all the guys I could see in their, in their attire, they're just, we're sweating profusely. I can feel the sweat going down my robe, it's in my socks, and we're like 10 minutes into the service. And, and it's grim, and I'm, I'm trying to move us along because I'm pretty sure we're all going to die. And, but, but then, right in the middle of, of the liturgy, I feel this whack! On my shin, the ring bearers kicked me. I'm going. It's hot. It's hot. I am. You know. I, I can get through this. Just a couple more minutes, and we'll be done. I'm going to ignore this. Thirty seconds later, whack! Oh man! Right in the shins, and then the yell. It's hot in here. Get us out of this place. You know, the best man's grabbing the little guy. <laughs> We'll give you ice cream. Well, 
what are my options at that point? I could have gotten down on his level, right? How dare you kick me in the shins, you little guy? I could have done that, right? But no, because I have a slightly different perspective. One, I know the service is going to get over shortly. He, he thinks he's trapped internally in this 95-degree room, and we definitely are all going to die. I'm also an adult. I've been able to live through a few things. I know it's been hot before. We're going to survive. It's going to be okay. So I bring all of that. I bring a much different perspective than the perspective of this little five-year-old. He's trapped in there. I can forgive him for kicking me in the shins because he just doesn't know any better. Well, for us to forgive anybody, we've got to have a different perspective than the one that we might be trapped in at that moment when the offense comes. And that's certainly what's going on with Jesus. So let's return there. One of the things that we most use to give us perspective as Christians is we look at that cross and we're reminded that we're able to forgive because he forgave us. That, that God has forgiven us in Christ, took our sins on the cross and they're forgiven. And because of that, we're able to forgive. I mean, we have that perspective that enables us to do that, right? That's what it's all about. The Bible's very clear about that. Forgive because you have been forgiven in Christ. Now, the thing is, that doesn't really apply to him. If we go back to Jesus hanging on the cross, here's a guy who never sinned. So he had nothing to be forgiven for. So he's never really had that perspective that he's forgiving these guys that crucified him because, hey, look, I've been forgiven, I'll forgive Oh, I never have been forgiven. I forgot. So let's review here a second all the things that are not happening for him to forgive. The, the people that are crucifying are not innocent. They're not five-year-olds. He's not a super forgiver. He doesn't have some kind of special powers to enable him to forgive. He is, you know, I really urge you to remember, he is there on the cross as a human being. Very human at this point. Suffering. He also doesn't have this perspective of being forgiven himself. So where does he get this ability, this perspective that does draw him out of that that allows him to forgive. What I want to suggest to you, it's right in the verse, right there, where he says, notice, he's in prayer mode. He isn't just speaking on his own. He, he isn't just having a little monologue with himself there and looking down at these guys and saying, forgive him. He says, what? He says, Father, forgive him. He's very consciously in a spirit of prayer here. He is consciously in a dialogue that, that presupposes some real intimacy between him and the Heavenly Father. Some intimacy that developed over time. He has a prayer life. He knows that God is real. 
Therefore, he knows something that his executioners apparently do not. That they can kill him, but they can't take away that relationship. They can't destroy that intimacy. Because it's indestructible. It will survive even death itself. So I think that Jesus is there and in the midst of all the agony on the cross, it's even intensified by the fact that this was the reason I came, was to help these guys, these ones who are crucifying me, this crowd that's yelling to have me crucified. It's to let them discover and enjoy this relationship that I have with you, Father in Heaven. And they don't get it. They still don't get it. But forgive them, Father. They don't know the joy that I know. This incredible, amazing joy. Forgive them because you and I both know that they could have it if they would just reach out for it. If they would just open their heart. I want to suggest to you this morning, and it could very well be that a number of you know what it's like to be persecuted by somebody. Maybe it's ongoing. I was talking to a guy this morning who's been hurt repeatedly over and over again. The road to forgiveness passes through a relationship with God. There's no other way we can pull that off. Not really. We aren't that good. If you're having trouble forgiving, it's probably not about the one that's persecuting you. It probably has more to do with your relationship with God. Where are you with that right now? band's going to come up here and they're going to sing this song about the cross. If they do that, you join in. Think about this incredible thing that we've been given. This forgiveness ourselves. This wonderful perspective of a God who died on our behalf. That we might know forgiveness. So that we can truly forgive others.
Before we pray together, here are some joys and concerns from our own congregation. I guess both a joy and concern this upcoming Tuesday, as many of you know, our local elections here in Elmhurst and in Chicago and beyond, so we keep those elections and all those who are voting in our prayers. As well, Gordon Crombie, we heard this week, has been diagnosed with kidney cancer and is most likely facing surgery to remove one of his kidneys in the near future. Another thing we heard this week, Bob Reynolds, who's the executive presbyter here in the Presbytery of Chicago, 
was diagnosed with prostate cancer and asks for our prayers as he undergoes surgery April 14th. Also, Billy Buttendorf, who grew up here at Yorkfield several decades ago and has worked as a contractor on various projects, died suddenly this past week. His funeral was yesterday, and we ask you to keep his family, and especially his wife, Kim, in your prayers. Also, Lisa Miller asks for prayers for her friend, Susan Soraya, who's hospitaled with a severe thyroid condition. John Brown is at Bridgeway Christian Village, formerly the Anchorage. He fell Saturday night and fractured his hip. Uh, no surgery is required, but he'll probably need some help for about a month to stay off of it. And finally, Dottie and Jean France ask for prayers for their friend, Bill Snyder, who had a heart attack and is in serious condition as we speak. And we remember, too, our homebound prisoners and those, many of those who have ongoing health concerns. Please pray with me. Almighty God, on this Palm Sunday, we add our voices to the throngs of people who hailed your son's arrival in Jerusalem so many years ago. We praise you for being the God who would become human like us, who would have solidarity with us, and who would ultimately be rejected and crucified by us. We praise you for redeeming us, for calling us by name, and for teaching us what it means to be fully human, how to forgive and be forgiven. As we offer our prayers to you now, help us to pay attention to what you, O oh God, are doing and to how we can be a part of it. Let us now pray for the world. God, our creator, you made all things in your wisdom and in your love you save us. We pray for the whole creation. Overthrow evil powers, right what is wrong, feed and satisfy those who thirst for justice so that all your children may freely enjoy the earth you have made and joyfully sing your praises. Let us pray for the church. Gracious God, you have called us to be the church of Jesus Christ. Keep us one in faith and service, breaking bread together and proclaiming the good news to the world, that all may believe in you, turn to your ways, and live in the light of your truth. Let us pray for world leaders and those who govern us. Mighty God, sovereign over the nations, direct those who make, administer, and judge our laws, especially remembering this week leaders who will be elected on Tuesday. Fill them with courage and wisdom and justice to lead us in the way of righteousness and to draw together one new world in peace. Let us pray for the sick and those in sorrow.
Merciful God, you bear the pain of the world. Look with compassion on those who are sick. Gordon Crombie, Bob Reynolds, Billy Buttendorf, Susan Soraya, John Brown, Bill Snyder. And stand with those who are in all forms of sorrow. Those mourning Billy's passing. Cheer them by your word and bring healing as a sign of your grace. May they know that neither death nor life, nor things present nor things to come, shall separate them from your love. Finally, let us pray for family and friends. God of compassion, bless us and those we love, our friends and families, that drawing close to you, we may be drawn closer to each other. And as your disciples, O God, we now pray the prayer together that Christ taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Let's stand and sing our last song together today. This is a really cool song. I like this song. And one of the things that's great about it, and we'll show you that in this song, is that the verse is very quiet, and the chorus is a lot of energy. So we're going to try to show you that and join us in that part of that song.
will live to know you here on the earth, and I will feel no Oh, my God is with me, and if my God is with me, whom then shall I fear, whom then shall I fear? Oh, no, you never let go, through the calm and through the storm, oh, no, you never let go. You never let go, Lord, you never let go of me. You keep on coming and you never let go. Yes, I can see a light that is coming for the heart that holds us. And there will be an end to these troubles, but until that day comes, still I will praise you, still I will praise you. And I can see a light that is coming for the heart that holds on. And there will be an end to these troubles, but until that day comes, still I will praise you, still I will praise you. Never let go. Sing it oh no, you never let go through the calm and through the storm. Never let go of me. He never lets go of you. Go from this place secure in that knowledge that the love of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit are with you now and always. Amen. Let's